Chapter Four, Part One of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part One of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part One. Closing address to the jury in the second Star Root trial. May it please the court and gentlemen of the jury. Perhaps some of you, maybe all of you, will remember that I made one of the opening speeches of this case, and that in that opening speech I endeavored to give you the scheme or plan of the indictment. I told you, I believe, at that time, that all these defendants were indicted for having conspired together to defraud the United States. In that indictment, they were kind enough to tell us how we agreed to accomplish that object, that we went into partnership with the second assistant postmaster general, he being one of these defendants, and that we then and there agreed to set up false petitions to have them signed by persons who were not interested in the mail service, to sign fictitious names to these petitions, those names representing no actual, real living persons, that we also agreed to have false and fraudulent letters written to the department urging this service, that in addition to all that, we were able to make and file false and fraudulent affidavits, in which we were to swear falsely as to the number of men and horses to be employed and the number of men and horses then necessary that in addition to that we were to file fraudulent subcontracts that the second assistant postmaster general was to make false and corrupt orders and that all these things were to be done to deceive mislead and blindfold the postmaster general they also set out that these orders so corruptly made were to be corruptly certified to the auditor of the treasury for the post office department in order that we might draw our pay that is what is known as the general scheme or plan of this indictment you have heard the testimony and remember some of it of course you do not remember it all probably no man ever lived who could do such a thing you have heard the testimony discussed, I believe, for about twenty days, so that I take it for granted that you know something about it, or at least have an idea that you do. The story that we told you in the first place, and that we now tell you, is about this. In 1877, Mr. Peck, Mr. Minor, and John W. Dorsey made up their minds to make bids and go into the mail business. I want you to remember that there is not one word in this indictment about any false bid ever having been made. Remember that. There is nothing in this indictment about a false bond having been given. Not a thing. There is nothing in this indictment charging that any of the original contracts were false. I want you to remember that. There is no evidence that any person signing any one of those contracts as security was not perfectly solvent. 
there is no evidence not one syllable that any proposal was fraudulent or that any bid was fraudulent well how is it possible for a bid to be fraudulent i'll tell you if you make a bid and make a contract or enter into an agreement at the same time with some of the post office officials so that your bid will be accepted when it is not the lowest there is fraud and there is a fraudulent bid there is one other way and that is to put in a bid to carry the mail at so many thousand dollars and then have below that straw bidders men not responsible and when the time comes to accept the bid of those gentlemen they refuse to carry it out and then the law is that it shall be given to the next highest and he refuses and the next and he refuses and the next highest and he refuses and so on until it comes to the highest bidder there are such combinations and have been i have no doubt for many years in the post office department that is called straw bidding and it is fraudulent bidding there is no such charge as that in this case every bid that was made was made in good faith and every bid that was accepted was followed by a good and sufficient contract entered into by the party making the bid and so that is the end of that now in eighteen seventy seven i say these men entered into an agreement amongst themselves that they would bid on certain routes and mr peck or mr minor or john w dorsey they may have it as they choose somebody wrote a letter to stephen w dorsey and in that letter told what they were going to do and requested him to get some man to obtain information in regard to these routes you know all that testimony stephen dorsey was then in the united states senate he sent for mr boone and he showed him that letter in consequence of that mr boone sent out his circulars to the postmasters all over the country or all over the portion as to which they were to bid and asked them about their roads about the price of oats and corn about the price of labor and about the winners in other words all the questions necessary for an intelligent man after having received intelligent answers to make up his mind as to the amount for which he could carry that mail mr boone do you remember says that he was to have at that time a certain share there is a conflict of testimony there mr dorsey says that he told boone that when john dorsey came here they would arrange that and that he had no doubt that they would be willing to give him a share but that john w dorsey did not give it to him the circulars were sent out and the information in some instances and i do not know but all came back then they agreed upon the amounts they were to bid i believe mr minor came here in december john dorsey i think in january and in february the bids were made all the amounts were put in the bidding book issued by the government by mr minor and mr boone all with two exceptions and those amounts had been placed there by them but under the advice of stephen w dorsey those amounts were lowered i remember one was upon the tongue river route the other route i have forgotten mr minor mr peck and john w dorsey were together afterwards a partnership was formed between john w dorsey and a e boone stephen w dorsey advanced some money 
There is nothing criminal about that. It is often foolish to advance money, but it is not a crime. It is often foolish to endorse for another, and many a man has been convinced of that, but it is not a crime. He advanced until, I believe, he was responsible for some fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars, and thereupon he declined to advance any more. He saw Mr. Minor in St. Louis and said to Mr. Minor, This is the last I am going to advance. I think he gave him some notes that he hypothecated or discounted at the German-American National Bank. He wanted security and thereupon they gave him post-office drafts for the purpose of securing his debt. He would advance no more money, and went away to New Mexico. Mr. Minor had a power of attorney from John W. Dorsey, who was absent, and a power of attorney from John M. Peck, who was absent. I believe on the 7th of August, or about that time, Mr. Boone went out. Why? They had not the money at that time to put on the service why a great many more bids had been accepted than they had anticipated and instead of getting twenty or thirty roots they had got i believe one hundred and thirty-four roots the consequence was they did not have the money to stock the roots there was another difficulty there was an investigation by congress and that delayed them a month or two and the consequence was that when the first of july came the day upon which the service should have been put on, it was not only not put on, but they had not the means to do it. Then what happened? Then it was that Mr. Minor took in Mr. Vale, and an agreement was made which bears the date of the 16th day of August, 1878. It was not finally signed by all the parties, I believe, until sometime in September or October under that contract which you have all heard read mr vale was given an interest in the business more than that subcontracts were given to mr vale and under the subcontract law which was passed the seventeenth day of may eighteen seventy eight i believe vale could file his subcontract in the post office department and that rendered all post office drafts or orders that had been given absolutely worthless that was done the subcontracts were given to vale under the powers of attorney that minor held from peck and john w dorsey and of course he could act for himself that was the situation stephen w dorsey was not there when he returned he found that everything had been disposed of except his liability and that he would have to pay the notes his security was gone, and the subcontracts were filed. At that time he and Mr. Vale had a quarrel. That is our story. In the meantime, John W. Dorsey was on the Tongue River route. I believe he visited Washington in November, and left word that he would like to sell all his interests in these routes, and I believe fixed the price. Sometime in November or December Mr. Vale made up his mind to take the routes, and afterwards changed his mind stephen w dorsey was then in the senate on the fourth of march eighteen seventy nine his term expired i believe on that very day or about that day he wrote a letter to brady calling his attention to the subcontracts that had been filed for the protection of vale and denouncing them 
That was the first thing he did. Then a few days afterward the parties met. In a little while afterwards they made a division of this entire business. You know how the division was made. Stephen W. Dorsey fell heir to about thirty of these roots, I think. In addition, he had to pay $10,000 to his brother and $10,000 to Peck. Mr. Vale, I think, took 40%, and Mr. Minor took 30%. Mr. Vale and Mr. Minor went into a partnership, and Stephen W. Dorsey took his roots, and that ended it. Mr. Peck was out, and John Dorsey was out, that is our story. When they divided these roots in order to invest the property of those roots in the persons to whom they fell, it was necessary to execute subcontracts and give post office drafts and things of that character. All those necessary papers they then and there agreed to make. Up to this point, there is not one act established by the evidence not entirely consistent with perfect innocence. Not an act. That is our story. After these roots fell to us, we did what we had the right to do, and what we could to make these roots of value. As businessmen, we had the right to do it, and we did only what we had the right to do. The next question that arises, and which, of course, is at the very threshold of this case, is, did these parties conspire? That is the great question. In my judgment, you should settle that the first thing when you go to the jury room. After hearing the case as presented by the government, and after having heard the charge of the court, the first thing for you to decide is, was there a conspiracy? How is a conspiracy proved? Precisely as everything else is proved. You prove that men conspire precisely as you prove them guilty of larceny or murder or any other crime or misdemeanor. It has been suggested to you that as conspiracy is very hard to prove, you should not require much evidence, that you should take into consideration the hardships of the government in proving a crime which in its nature is secret. Nearly all crimes are secret. Very few men steal publicly with a band of music and with a torch in each hand. They generally need their hands for other purposes, if they are in that business. All crime loves darkness. We all know that. One of the troubles about proving that a man has committed a crime is that he tries to keep it as secret as possible. He does not carry a placard on his breast or on his back stating what he is about to do. The consequence is that it is nearly always difficult to prove men guilty as stated in the indictment. But that does not relieve the prosecution. That burden is taken by the government, and they must prove men guilty of conspiracy precisely as they prove anything else. Is circumstantial evidence sufficient? Certainly. Certainly. Circumstantial evidence will prove anything, provided the circumstances are right, and provided further that all the circumstances are right. A chain of circumstances is no stronger than the weakest circumstance, as a chain of iron is no stronger than the weakest link. Were you to establish or attempt to establish a fact by circumstances, each circumstance must be proved not only beyond a reasonable doubt, but each circumstance must be wholly consistent with the innocence of the defendants. Now let me call your attention to what I claim to be the law upon the subject 
and I will call the attention of the court to it at the same time. I will take this as a kind of test. The hypothesis of guilt must flow naturally from the facts proved, and with them, not with some of them, not with a majority of them, but with all of them. In other words, if they establish 100 circumstances and 99 point to guilt, and one circumstance thoroughly established is inconsistent with guilt, or not perfectly consistent with innocence, that is the end of the case. It is as if you were building an arch. Every stone that you put into the arch must fit with every other, and must make that segment of the circle. If one stone does not fit, the arch is not complete. So with circumstantial evidence. Every solitary circumstance must be of the exact shape to fit its neighbor, and when they are all put together the arch must be absolutely complete. Otherwise you must find the defendants not guilty. The next sentence is, the evidence must be such as to exclude every reasonable hypothesis except that of guilt. In other words, all the facts proved must be consistent with and point to the guilt of the defendants. Not only, but they must be inconsistent, and every fact proved must be consistent with their innocence. Now, what does that mean? It means that every fact that is absolutely established in this case must point to the guilt of the defendants. It means that if there is one established fact that is inconsistent with their guilt, that fact becomes instantly an impenetrable shield that no honest verdict can pierce. That is what it means. That being so, and the court in my judgment will instruct you that that is the law, let us talk a little about what has been established. In the first place, nearly all that has been established, or I will not say established, but nearly all that has been said, for the purpose of showing our motives were corrupt, and that we actually conspired, rests upon evidence of what we call conversations. Some witness had a conversation with somebody three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. The safest and most unsatisfactory evidence in this world is evidence of conversation. Words leave no trace. They leave no scar in the air. No footsteps. Memory writes upon the secret tablet of the brain words that no human eye can see. No man can look into the brain of another and tell whether he is giving a true transcript of what is there. It is absolutely impossible for you to tell whether it is memory or imagination. No one can do it. Another thing, probably there is not a man in the world whose memory makes an absolutely perfect record. The moment it is written, it begins to fade, and as the days pass, it grows dim, and as the years go by, no matter how deeply it may have been engraved, it is covered by the moss of forgetfulness. And yet you are asked to take from men their liberty, to take from citizens their reputation, to tear down roof trees on testimony about conversation that happened years and years ago, as to which the party testifying had not the slightest interest. As a rule, memory is the child of attention. Memory is the child of interest. Take the avaricious man. He sets down a debt in his brain, and he graves it as deep as graving on a stone. A man must have interest. 
his attention must be aroused. Tell me that a man can remember a conversation of four or five years ago in which he had no interest. We have been in this trial, I don't know how many years. I have seen you gentlemen gradually grow gray. You have, during this trial, heard argument after argument as to what some witness said, as to some line embodied in this library, indicating the record. You have heard the counsel for the prosecution say one thing, the counsel for the defense another, and often his honor, holding the impartial scales of memory, differs from us both. And then we have turned to the record and found that all were mistaken. This has happened again and again, and yet when that witness was testifying, every attorney for the defense was watching him, and every attorney for the prosecution was looking at him. How hard it would be for you, Mr. Juror, or for any one of you, to tell what a witness has said in this case. Yet men are brought here who had a casual conversation with one of the defendants five years ago about a matter in which no one of the witnesses was interested to the extent of one cent, and pretend to give that conversation entire. For my part, were I upon the jury, I would pay no more attention to such evidence than I would to the idle wind. Such men are not given a true transcript of the brains. It is a result of imagination. They wish to say something. They recollect that they had a conversation upon a certain subject, and then they fill it out to suit the prosecution. Now I am told another thing, that after getting through the conversations, they then gave us notice that we must produce our books, our papers, our letters, our stubs, and our checks, that we must produce everything in which we have an interest, and hand them all over to this prosecution. They say they only want what pertains to the mail business. But who is to judge of that? They want to look at them to see if they do pertain to the mail business. They won't take our word. We must produce them all. It may be that with such a net they might bring in something that would be calculated to get somebody in trouble about something, no matter whether this business or not. They might find out something that would annoy somebody. They gave us notice wide enough and broad enough to cover everything we had or were likely to have. What did they want with those things? Maybe one of their witnesses wanted to see them? Maybe he wanted to stake out his testimony. Maybe he did not entirely rely upon his memory and wanted to find whether he should swear as to the checkbooks or a checkbook, and whether he should swear as to one stub or as to many. Maybe he wanted to look them all over so that he could fortify the story he was going to tell. We did not give them the books. We would not do it. We took the consequences. But what did we offer? That is the only way to find out our motive. I believe that on page 3776 there is something upon that subject. I will read what I said. Now, gentlemen, with regard to the books. As there has been a good deal said on that subject, I make this proposition. Mr. Dorsey has books extending over a period of twenty years, or somewhere in that neighborhood. He has had accounts with a great many people on a great many subjects. He does not wish to bring those books into court, or to have those accounts gone over by this prosecution. Not for reasons in this case, 
but for reasons entirely outside of the case if the gentleman on the other side will agree or if the court will appoint any two men or any three men we will present to those men all our books every one we ever had in the world and allow them to go over every solitary item and report to this court every item pertaining to john w dorsey and company minor peck and company or vale minor and company with regard to every dollar connected directly or indirectly with this entire business from november or december eighteen seventy seven to the present moment and report to this court exactly every item just as it is i make that proposition that proposition was refused what else did i do i offered to bring into court every check including the time they said we drew money to pay Brady. i offered to bring in every check on every bank in which we had one dollar deposited every one that was not admitted and why because the court distinctly said it rests upon the oath of the defendants at last he may have had money in the banks that we know nothing about to which i replied at the time that if we stated here in open court the name of every bank in which we did business and there is any other bank knowing that we do business with it we will hear from it so that we offered gentlemen in this case every check on every bank but one i did not know at that time that we had ever had an account with the german american savings bank i did not find that out until afterwards but you will remember that mr merrick held in his hand the account of dorsey with that bank and mr kaiser who i believe had charge of that bank was here and if there had been anything upon those books certainly the government would have shown it more than that that bank went into the hands of a receiver i think eight months before any of these checks are said to have been given for money which was afterwards given to brady now they insist that because we failed to bring the books into court therefore the law presumes that the absolute evidence of our guilt is in those books i believe they claim that is the law if my memory serves me rightly colonel bliss so claimed in his speech in other words that when they gave us notice to produce a book and we do not produce it there is a presumption against us that is not the law gentlemen when they gave us notice to produce a book or letter and we do not produce it what can they do they can prove the contents of the book or letter in other words if we fail to produce what is called the best evidence then the government can introduce secondary evidence they can prove the contents by the memory of some witnesses by some copy no matter how and that is the only possible consequence flowing from a refusal to produce the book or letter and yet in this case gentlemen mr bliss wishes you to give a verdict based upon two things first upon what we fail to prove and secondly on what the court would not let them prove he tells you that they offered to prove so-and-so but the court would not let them he wants you to take that into consideration and secondly that there were certain things that we did not prove and that those two make up a case that is their idea now let us see if i am right about the law the first case to which i will call the attention of the court is a very small one but the principle is clear 
It is the case of Lawson and another, assignees of Schiffner versus Sherwood, and it is found in two English common law reports, one Starkey, 314. The Court. Colonel Ingersoll, you cannot argue that question to the jury. You cannot cite an authority and discuss it to the jury. Mr. Ingersoll. Then I will discuss it with the court. It is immaterial to me which way I turn when I am talking. I insist that the jury must at last decide the law in this case. I will read another case to the court, found in 19 Maryland, Spring Garden Mutual Insurance Company versus Evans. The court decides in this case that the only consequence of their refusal to produce the papers, they not denying that they had them, was to allow the opposite party to prove their contents. That is all, that it could not be patched out with a presumption. The court. But if afterward they should attempt to contradict the secondary evidence, the court would not have allowed them to do it. Mr. Ingersoll. It does not say so. The court. That is the law. Mr. Ingersoll. Suppose, after the other side had proved the contents, there was an offer of the actual original papers. I can find plenty of authority that they must be received. The court. I have never seen such an authority, but I have seen a great many to the contrary. Mr. Ingersoll. I have never seen an authority to the contrary that was very well reasoned, but then I will not argue about that, for that is not a point in this case. The Court. If you have the papers and have received notice to produce them, you are bound to produce them. If you do not produce them, secondary evidence is admissible to prove their contents, but after the secondary evidence has been received, the court will not allow you then, after having first failed to produce the papers upon notice, to resort to the primary evidence which you ought to have produced upon the notice for the purpose of contradicting the secondary evidence that was given. Mr. Ingersoll. Now let me give the court a case in point. In this very case that we are now trying, Mr. Rodell, in his statement to McVeigh, said that there was a check for $7,000, that the money was drawn upon that check, and that he and Dorsey went together to the post office department, and that Dorsey went into Brady's room, that the money was drawn by Dorsey. That was his statement to McVeigh and James. The court. It was not his statement here. Mr. Ingersoll. Yes, that was his statement here, as I will show hereafter. But let me state my point. He was coming upon the stand. The check, instead of being for $7,000, was for $7,500. Instead of being drawn to the order of Dorsey or to Bear, it was drawn to the order of Rodale himself. Instead of being drawn at the bank by Dorsey, it was drawn by Rodale in person and had his endorsement upon the back of it. We were asked to produce that. I preferred not to do it until I had heard the testimony of Mr. Rodell. Why? Because I wanted to put that little piece of dynamite under his testimony and see where the fragments went. And I did. That is my answer to that. 
Now, I find another case in the first volume of Curtis Circuit Court Reports, where it is said, on page 402, that, by common law, a notice to produce a paper, the court interposing. Before we part from what you are saying, I wish to say that I do not think that the other side gave you notice to produce the checks. That is my memory. Mr. Ingersoll. Yes. Let me state my memory to the court. I do not remember exactly every one of these 4,000 pages of testimony. There are three or four that I may be a little dim about, but I do remember that a notice was given to us to produce everything in the universe nearly, and that the court held that the scope was a little too broad. I have forgotten the page, but I will tell you where it comes from. It was where Mr. Burdell swore about the stub book. I find the notice, may it please the Your Honor, on page 2255, and it was dated the 13th of February. This is the notice, and it gave the same notice to all the defendants. You are hereby notified to produce forthwith in court, in the above entitled cause, all letters and communication, including all telegrams of every kind and description, purporting to come from any one of said defendants, and addressed to you or delivered to you, and all memoranda in which reference is made to any contract or contracts of any one of said defendants with the United States or with the Postmaster General for carrying the mail under the letting of 1878 on any route in the United States or in any way referring to any contract or contracts for so carrying the mail in which J. W. Bosler or any one of said defendants had an interest or in any way referring to any act contract or proceeding thereunder or to any payment draft warrant check or bill or note or to any possible loss or profit in connection with such contract or contracts or to the management or execution thereof or referring to any possible gain or profit to be derived by any of said defendants from contracts for carrying the mail of the United States, or to any payments under such contract, or to the distribution of the proceeds made or to be made of such payment, or to the management of any enterprise or enterprises in connection with the transportation of the mail, or to gains, profits, or losses accruing or likely to accrue from such enterprises, or to the financial means for carrying on same, and also to produce any and all books containing any entry or entries in regard to any of the subjects, matters, checks, drafts, or payments relating or having reference to the subjects, etc., herein before referred to, and also any letter book or letter books containing letterpress copies of letters referring to said subject or subjects. I believe just about that time, or a little after, another notice was given. Mr. Merrick, if the council will allow me, my impression is that that notice was deemed by the court to be too broad. The court. It was. Mr. Ingersoll. Then another notice was given that specified all of these things. Curtis says, in this case, that by the common law, a notice to produce a paper merely enables the party to give parole evidence of its contents, if it not be produced. Its non-production has no other legal consequence. 
I find, too, that in the Maryland case they make a reference to Cooper versus Gibson, 3 Camp 303. This ends Chapter 4, Part 1 of 24.